Welcome to episode 25 of the Hoop Threads podcast. A very special episode here with uh, associate head coach at Florida State University men's basketball, Stan Jones. How's it going today, coach? Uh, it's going great, man. I appreciate you taking time to ask me to share some conversation with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to our time together. Absolutely, man. You're a basketball lifer. Uh, you're, you're one of the guys that, that people talk about, and they say uh, he's probably forgotten more about basketball than I'll ever know. So <laughs> been looking forward to this time. All right, I'm so, just a basketball guy. That's kind of that's kind of what uh, I've been blessed to be. All right, so let's uh, let's start at the beginning. So you know, take me through your basketball journey from you know walk a walk on at Memphis State uh, to you know an AAU coach to Miami with uh, Coach Hamilton to the NBA and then back to uh, Florida with uh, S- uh, FSU. Take me through that journey. Well, you you missed a little uh, spot there in the uh, in the pecking order, but. Yes, I was a, a walk-on player. Had to make it through a tryout of about 75 guys. Uh, back those days, all the programs in Division One usually had a, a junior varsity team where they would have, have some scholarship guys play with you and they'd uh, have a game and then you'd help prepare the guys for practice. And so that ended up being a, a really big resource for me when I chose to dive in head first to being a coach uh, because I learned so many different ways to play, not only learning what we were going to do, but learning all the things and being the people I had to be as a scouting uh, player in practice, I just was able to grasp a lot of things. And while I was doing that, I started actually coaching my first year in college uh, at the school I'd gone to. My father was a pastor and his church sponsored a private school where I had uh, gone to high school at, and they asked me to coach the sixth grade team mm-hmm. on a Saturday morning league. And uh, while I was a business major and the fever of coaching kind of jumped on me during those two years of doing that, and then after my second year at Memphis State, uh, they had a coaching change. Uh, the new coach didn't believe in walk-ons, dropped uh, the JV program, dropped the scouting thing. And we all got, including one of us that had come in together who had earned a scholarship. He took a scholarship away from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got as a different dude that didn't have, uh, it was all about him. It wasn't about you know, the program. Yeah. And so uh, and while I was finishing up my school, uh, I, I got had a chance to coach the junior high team, which, uh, now everybody calls it middle school, but back then it was junior high and uh, kept moving there and then uh, ended up getting married after those four years in school and became the high school coach at the same private school uh, because I'd gone full out. I changed my major from being a business uh, major to a uh, uh, education major so I could teach and coach and, uh, and be in a school system and I ended up spending 14 years uh, in the coaching, in the high school coaching ranks. And, you know, after my third year, we actually won an association state title and only lost one game. And we probably shouldn't have lost that one. Mm. And I thought the phone was going to be jumping off the hook. Everybody wanted me. I was the next John Wooden coming along. And uh, I got a call 11 years later after that. It was 14 years. Uh, And then the AAU part of it came in uh, toward the end. I, I started at the smallest private school in the state of Tennessee and ended up coaching at the biggest private school in the state of Mississippi down in Jackson, Mississippi. And while I was there, I, I had come from a basketball city, which Memphis is. And at that time, there was still a lot of uh, segregation. The public schools and the private schools were kind of separate in terms of racial divide and they didn't play each other. And that didn't bother me. I started taking my kids to play in the Summer City League. We played in the team camps with everybody, uh, made relationships with all the coaches in town. It wasn't just a, the private school coaches. And uh, an African American, pretty prominent lawyer, had a son that was coming up. and and a couple of lawyers on, on my team, sons were on my team. And 
uh, they wanted to start AAU together, and I, they asked me to try to be the guy to bring it all together for them. And uh, I was part of being responsible for the first time where black public school kids, white private school kids played together, and we won the state AAU tournament, went to the national tournament, and that's where Coach Hamilton uh, saw us coaching uh, and, and as, he, as he was evaluating our players. And one thing led to another, and uh, over the course of about four weeks, I went from uh, being at a, a prominently white, affluent private school to going to the University of Miami to be on staff as the third assistant uh, for Coach Hamilton at the University of Miami through my history with uh, building those uh, those bridges and uh, also being part of the five-star basketball camp family, uh, which I was part of for 10 years. And Howard Garfinkel, uh, the legend who, who started that uh, all those years was kind of a uh, could make careers happen for you. And, and uh, some people who had recruited my players uh, knew Coach Hamilton really well. So divine, I always say divine intervention allowed that dynamic to happen. And now we're 25 of the last 26 years. I've been uh, working as an assistant uh, for Coach Hamilton at the University of Miami, the Washington Wizards, and obviously now 19 years in Florida State. Mm -hmm. One thing real quick on that, I, I was listening to an interview that you had and uh, you were talking about, you know, at the time, you know, as a high school coach and AU coach, um, you kind of checked a lot of the boxes that that Coach Hamilton was looking for um, as far as also being, um, you know, a head coach. He, I, I heard that you say that he was really looking for someone that had that experience. Talk about, um, you know, why he why you think that that was something that he was really looking for. Um, and, you know, how the, some of the work that you put in was really prepared you for, you know, stepping into that position after you got the position. Well, the last part of your question, I'll answer first. I mean, every day uh, that I coached from all the way back into junior high and elementary school, I had a vision of what I wanted to become. And so I coached every day like I was being a college coach mm -hmm. and because uh, that's what I wanted to be. So. Uh, I had a book that was pretty powerful that I read years ago by a Division Three football coach named Frosty Westering mm -hmm. titled uh, Make the Big Time Where You Are. And mm -hmm. so I, even in, when it, I was in a small private school with not any budget at all, we went out and raised the money and, and made our kids feel like they were as good as any program in the country, uh, mm -hmm. even though in, in their minds they thought they were. In reality, we weren't, but we were trying to trying to make them believe they could be who they were, where they were, and make, and they were part of the big time. Uh, so we did that, and uh, that was one of my kind of uh, uh, moments where you, know, you kind of had that click in your mind. As I know, I'm coaching in one of the regional tournaments one one uh, March or February, whenever it was in that year, and uh, was working the referees a little bit. And the referee kind of came over and said, "Coach, you need you need to stop it. I'm not putting up with any of that college, and you can fill in whatever profanity you want to put after that." And I said, "Dude, thinks I'm acting like a college coach, so I'm I, maybe maybe I'm heading in the right direction." So it's kind of a one of those aha moments that mm. that uh, part of my beliefs were uh, you know, out there without me really believing about it uh, or, or, or trying to make it happen or being a phony or anything. So that happened from there. And, you know, Coach Hamilton is, is one of the incredible minds in, in college basketball coaching. He, he knows what he's looking for and how he builds his program. And every time he hires – and I tell people this all the time. Whenever we have openings on our staff, they'll call Coach Jones, you, you're, your coach's guy, he's going to help you. And I say there's always – uh, that's one of two areas that Coach Hamilton has a very particular plan of how he's going to do things to get that spot. And he, he he's looking for people to fill our staff's gaps and his leadership gaps so mm -hmm. we have a complete program. And so when he was looking for my spot, that was the first year of uh, the uh, – then it was two hours a week, off-season workouts you could start having. So 
Mm. His three components he was looking for is he wanted somebody that had been a head coach. It didn't matter what level. He wanted somebody who'd been part of five-star basketball camp because that at that time was an unbelievable teaching camp. And you had to, mm. you had to prove yourself there, not just as a player, but as a coach to keep getting asked to come back every summer. And it was college coaches could work it. So it was an unbelievable networking thing, but it was also a big, it was like a basketball overdose is what I called it. Because mm. every day you're listening to some of the greatest clinicians in the world give uh, stations and give lectures and you've got to do your part in, in the, what you're assigned to do. And if you don't do it, I've seen Mr. Garfinkel fire people in the middle of camp because they were doing a lackluster job in, in terms of their teaching and, uh, and coaching their teams uh, to make the camp standard that he wanted it to have. So, mm-hmm. uh, so he wanted that and he wanted somebody that had a reputation of being a, a team developer as well as a player developer. Mm-hmm. And uh, my success of taking teams that wasn't loaded with high major uh, athletes, but we were able to win uh, had kind of gotten out there a little bit and through the AAU thing that happened, uh, I kind of checked the box and the way he went through his back channels of, of calling people that he thinks knows you. He don't call the people that you tell him he should call that you <laughs> recommend. He works his own back channel. And you know, when, when we hire people now, you know, he'll walk in my office one day and say, what do you know about so-and-so? And I'll say what I'm saying. He says, well, he's going to be in town today for lunch. I want you to go with us. You know, he's already, he's already kind of made his mind up who he's going to hire. Uh, because he's gone in there and he's evaluated and, and done his uh, his due diligence on how he's vetted people for, for the staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all the way down to video coordinators and ops people and uh, not just the assistant coaches. So all, all that came together. And I, you know, it, when, when he hires you that way, he trusts you. I remember the first day I got there, uh, the first day of school, uh, he said he went over our team, kind of what the guys' strengths and weaknesses were, and recruiting was starting. And I was – because at that time, the, the third assistant didn't recruit. Uh, I was out there nine, 10 hours a day taking guys one-on-one individually through player development and by myself. Mm. And uh, he wasn't out there uh, dictating or doing it himself. He said, this is what we need to work on. That's what I hired you to do, make them better. And uh, he's always that way. He gives you space to work in your strengths and, and doesn't micromanage uh, mm. because that's what I you know, he's, he's tell you. That's what I hired you to do. And I tell all our new guys and our managers and GAs when they come in, uh, you know, I remember sitting in my office and Coach Hamilton walks in one day and says, I'm not real pleased with our mail-out program when the mail-outs were a pretty big deal in terms of the recruiting process. Mm-hmm. I want you to do a whole new one for us. I want, you, I want you to create an annual rotation. Turned around and walked out of my office. Didn't say, this is what we're marketing. This is what we're selling. This is what we're promoting. This is what University of Miami is about, or this is what our program is about. It was just, I want a new mail-out program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so you, you know, I tell young high school coaches, you, know, you always got to be smart on, on creating your own ability to have resources. And while I was a high school coach, every time my players got a piece of recruiting mail sent to the school, I'd have them open in the front of my office and go over to the secretary of the athletic department and make a copy. And I'd kept notebooks of all those things. Mm. So I just started going to back through all those things. And Hey, this was great. I like, I like this and started tailoring it and, 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 and creating it. So it would match what uh, University of Miami and what uh, Coral Gables was about, what playing in the Big East was about. And uh, so I, 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 I used, I, I, while I, again, I was going back trying to prepare myself to be a college coach, I was keeping all those things in the event that I became a college coach and it ended up being a, a prophetic uh, situation that I needed that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I tell all the guys all the time, so coach is not going to walk in here and give you an outline of what he wants you to do. That's <laughs> what he hired you to do is to be able to think on your th- feet 
and he believes you have the talent to to uh, make things happen. And if you can't do it, you won't be around here very long. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've taken great pride in being that kind of self-starter and mm-hmm. uh, taking those challenges on and trying to um, take my job description and make it be as uh, as elite as can be and, and, and to be a, uh, a standard for the rest of the staff to work off of. Mm-hmm. Let's talk next about the uh, the double whammy of building a, a respected basketball program at a football school in arguably the best conferences, you know, at the time in, in college basketball. You know, when you were at Miami, you were in the Big East. And I, I don't care what anyone says. This is the best conference in college basketball, just super deep. I think there was one year that they had 12 teams in the tournament. Um, and, you know, at now at Florida State, you know, at the ACC, you know, with some of the, the, the big heavyweights, you know, in North Carolina, Duke. Uh, Virginia. So, so talk about, um, you know, there aren't really any nights off, you know, you're recruiting against these blue bloods at the beginning, you haven't recruited the incumbent players. Talk about the patience required to, to get the right players into the program uh, to get the development up to speed and, and to right the ship, so to speak. Well, that's uh, you know, that, that's one thing again, coach Hamilton being the egoless leader that he is has never walked into and when I, I wasn't there when he first started in Miami I, I came in the middle and went to the end when he was in Miami and the whole time here at Florida State is he, he takes whatever the strengths of the school is and he makes that part of our program and part of our our recruiting and we embrace the relationships and using that as a as a viable uh, piece for people to visually see and experience in terms of our recruiting and uh and using that uh, brand name that the Miami football team and the Florida State football program have had as as it's just part of the university experience mm-hmm. uh, instead of, you know, we're, we're trying to out-compete. Instead of, we're not trying to out-compete with them. We're trying to figure out a way to beat the, the basketball teams in our conference. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I really think there's uh, – to, to building a program is there's really a kind of a five-step process. And I always tell uh, that it starts with your ability to evaluate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think coaches all, always hired coaches. Our, our, all our coaching staff have been very good. Uh, and then when we go out to see high schools or we go out to see the travel ball tournaments um, that we really focus in on, on doing our job. And we also trust our network, all, all really good recruiters, uh, even having college coaching friends that are kind of your little personal circle of, of, uh, of eyeballs and ears for each other, you know, mm-hmm. trusting those people and asking questions and getting them to help put eyes on people and make recommendations. So if you got, former staff members that are working at, at lower division one schools or mid mid majors, you know, mm-hmm. Hey, when you see somebody that can play for us, let us know. And then, you know, coach is a big follow-up guy on that. I mean, one of the, one of the great re- recruiting stories that, that helped us get over the hump and win the 2012 ACC championship was uh, Bernard James. And uh, mm-hmm. coach had learned this actually from Joby Hall when he was his assistant coach at the university of Kentucky is if, if somebody contacts us telling us they got a player, we should recruit, uh, we should respect their uh, enthusiasm for our program and follow up on it. But an ACC referee had worked uh, every year. There's all the bases, uh, military bases in the United States. They have basketball teams that play a tournament. And, it, and they brought in college referees. And one of the referees was in it was an ACC referee. And as he watched, he saw this one player, 6'10", left-handed, very athletic. He picked out four assistant, I mean, uh, head coaches in the ACC that he kind of knew needed a little help and this kid could probably figure out a way to be in that kind of program. And Coach Hamilton was one of them. And Coach was the only one of the four that followed up. And Bernard James ended up coming in and uh, got his GED, went to junior college for two years, played for us for two years, ended up being the 33rd pick in the draft, was 
ACC all defensive team led the, led the league in block shots, mm. uh, his maturity and his, uh, his ability to be a follower made him be a great leader for our team. Cause he, you know, I learned you know, sometimes when you see kids coming out of the, he, he was in the air force, you think kids coming out of the military, you know, they just got this, they, they learn leadership. Well, they don't learn leadership. They learn followership. And mm. because you learn how to follow so well, now everybody else in the locker room, if, you know, if we told Bernard to stand backwards and pigeon toe his toes and, shoot it underhanded back over his head and that's the best way to shoot that's what he would do he wouldn't question it he wouldn't roll his eyes at you he would give it his best effort so when he then spoke in a team meeting or in a huddle uh guys said bernard's saying something right now we need to we need to follow him because he set such a great example for the program and but it goes back to how coach has been able to evaluate uh, and follow up on his evaluations because now you go from evaluating to recruiting and that means you got to get them and then the third step is you got to be able to develop them. And uh, I think that's one thing our program has done for years is we take the guys we got and we figure out what they can do. And we really try to enhance that. We try to strengthen what they can't do, but we try to get them to understand when would be when they've strengthened that enough to actually start using it. Mm-hmm. We're very proactive in our conversations with our guys about their development and, and where we are in the process, what they, you know, what they should stay away of how that makes you know, all of them that want to be pros, you know, we have to educate them from all our experience of, you know, you, you start showing stuff you can't do well yet. You are making yourself a label that you, the NBA is a label league. Mm-hmm. And once you get labels, they rarely change a label on a kid because there's so many other people they can pick from. Yeah. So you've got to learn, understand how to build your label where they're all positives and they're not a bunch of negatives in your file where, cause they're always looking for reasons to take people off their board, not mm-hmm. put people on their board in their, in their draft rooms. So we, we get to that development piece uh, and, and then you, you, you work your way through the next two things to winning, which is the last stage. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where we try to get to evaluation, recruiting, developing, strategizing. And, you know, the one thing we've done with our whole system is we've always, and I believe this as a high school coach, you take your schedule and you look at the top third, the top fourth of your schedule and you build your system if you want to be a championship program on how you got to beat the top third or fourth percent of your league, uh, because you're going to beat the rest of the teams anyway, no matter how you're playing, if mm-hmm. you do that. Mm-hmm. So since we day one at Florida State, we've evaluated the Blue Bloods in our league. And uh, as Virginia and, and as Louisville's come in and those teams, we're always building how do we put stuff in there that offensively, defensively, and transition-wise, uh, converting from each one of those, how do we best give ourselves a chance to beat those teams and be our, be in the conversation for championship opportunities? Mm-hmm. And that always, when you get to after strategize, now you have winning. And I believe that's how you build a program from the ground up is those five steps. Gotcha. That's great. Um, let's, let's talk about two quotes building off of that, that I heard um, from you in interviews. So the first was uh, recruit attitude, develop skill. Uh, and then the second one was, you know, you were talking about recruits, you know, visiting campus and you said, we're not looking for kids that are buying with their eyes. We're looking for kids that want to do something special. They want to be coached. They want to be developed, want to be a part of something that's unique and different. Um, so talk about how important um, buying into the culture is before recruits even arrive, you know, on campus and sign uh, and talk about how your program is intentionally different and, you know, how there's a high, uh, like a heavy, heavy emphasis on, on depth and on defense. Well, um, you know, the first quote you talked about is, is, is uh, recruit attitude and develop skill. I mean, I, I stole that from a, 
a general, uh, uh, Jim Mattis, who, who, put, who put a book out called uh, uh, Chaos, a call sign Chaos. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what the military do. And uh, so we're looking for guys that have that attitude. And, and, we, and we, we don't just evaluate the kid. We evaluate the family. We evaluate who he's played for because uh, guys that uh, play for really good high school coaches that demand winning and really teach guys how to play uh, with other guys. Cause I tell people this all the time. The worst thing you can do in recruiting is recruit the best player off a bad team because mm -hmm. they're never going to know how to play with other dudes. And I tell all our guys, you have no shot of playing in the NBA. If you do not know how to function and be productive with other alpha dogs and other, we, we like to use the word dudes in our, in our, program yeah. if you can't function in that group you can't play in the nba it's because the nba I, I coached in it and i didn't believe it until i coached in it because stan van gundy was coached assistant coach at the miami heat when we were down at the university of miami and he and i lived in the same neighborhood mm. and he had told me that he said the league is 95 percent role players mm. uh, it's 20 to 25 stars and the rest of the 450 jobs are role players they all have something that create a roster that an organization tries to do to build where they can win around the stars that they have mm. So we're looking for guys that come out of programs where they played with other really good players. They've played for a coach that demands that they play the game the right way. They learn how to play five-man connected basketball. They learn how to play hard and play uh, on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, they know how to make great decisions, whether to shoot, pass, or drive, mm -hmm. uh, and with all their talent. And I tell every kid uh, when they come on their official visits with us, you know, how do I get to the NBA, Coach Jones? And I'll say, well, I've learned this in my career. If you're blessed with a certain amount of genetic gifting in terms of how your mom and dad came together and, and all that worked out in your favor, you got to have three areas that you have to have a high capacity. in. Number one is you have to have a high capacity for work. If you're a guy that doesn't want to get in the gym, the weight room, the film room, and put the necessary time in, if you're low in any of those areas, you won't play in the NBA. The second area you got to have a high capacity for is your capacity to learn. And I always pull out our playbook from – uh, we had with the Washington Wizards said, this is what an NBA team is going to put in and use for an 82-game schedule. So if you can't come in here and work on what a college team is going to put in for a 35- to 40-game schedule, you're never going to play in the NBA because having retention, having memory, having quick ability to either listen or to use your eyes and learn something because you know, in the NBA, coaches will put stuff on the board uh, that they never practice because there's not, not that much practice time in the NBA. And mm. so if you can't look at the board and figure out basketball IQ of what your timing and where your spacing should be, you're not going to play in the NBA uh, because the, there's just too many other people who can and it's too elite at that level. The coaches are too smart and the top players are too smart. And mm. so you can't be a guy that can't remember the playbook and execute and, and think on your feet and make adjustments based on what the other team's doing in the course of a game. Um, it's just not going to happen. So you've got to be really good in that area. And the third thing is uh, the area is your ability, uh, the capacity to handle your distractions. Mm. And distractions can be everything from social life, social media, outside noise, family members, pressures, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, dealing with your own self-confidence and self-worth and happiness, all those things that, that the emotional makeup it takes to be an elite player in college that will give you a chance to make it to the NBA. All those things have to be at a high level for you to make it. I said, we're going to work with you on all these areas every day, every week. And that's what you went back to a question earlier on, on how coach builds his staff and why he wanted a head coach 
at that time on the staff is coach always hires people that are a little bit older uh, in the, in the full-time assistant spots because he wants men of character on his staff who can sit down over a hamburger or sit down in the office or sit down in the hotel lobby on a road trip and talk, not just basketball, but talk life and talk grown man development and emotional development and uh, mental and uh, uh, mental development and spiritual development and all those things where a, a kid doesn't just waste his whole life thinking all he's got to do is remember a basketball play. But he's got to learn how to be a good father, husband, citizen, community leader when he gets out of college and is out on his own doing what adult things has to be done. So mm. you know, those, those are three areas that we really try to work on and develop with our guys. So in our evaluation, we're, we're evaluating families. You know, now with the success we've been having, I mean, we get calls and with Coach Hamilton being kind of the godfather uh, that still connects back to the John Thompson, Nolan Richardson, John Chaney, George Raveling guys who were the giants on helping minority coaches uh, make it uh, into being head coaches in college basketball. You know, people are calling all the time, what, would you recruit this guy? And we have some you know, basic questions that we kind of ask is, you know, are they the kind of guys we want to coach? Are they the kind of guys that are just coming here to prop up their numbers and don't care how the program is? Are they people that really care about others? Or are they just about themselves right now and trying to use us as a platform? And we try to, we try to dig in and, and mine out and vet those things to make sure our locker room is tight, is close-knit, and the kids have enough emotional IQ that they're happy even when they're not being the center of attention that night. They're genuinely happy for other people. And mm. if you don't have that in the locker room, your program will disintegrate quickly. Mm. And, you know, the guy that probably, as we were working on making sure we get that, got that culture in our locker room, the guy that really flipped our program uh, five years ago was Jonathan Isaac. Jonathan mm. Isaac ended up being the sixth pick in the draft. He was on track to possibly be the defensive player of the year in the NBA this year before injuries got him uh, and, that, and blew his knee out and everything. But Jonathan Isaac, could be the happiest guy in the locker room and score two points as long as we won. Mm. And that's all that mattered to him. And so we had mm. some other pretty high profile guys we've been able to recruit that we had kind of had to take a chance on, but they wasn't, they wasn't off the charts, man. They, they were, they were within our realm of what we thought we could mentor and develop. And when they saw Jonathan knowing that he was ranked way ahead of them was moving up in the draft, they started mm. realizing, Hey, it's okay. If, if I don't have a great game, but Jonathan has a good game because Jonathan's happy for me when he doesn't have a good game and I have a good game as long as we're winning. And uh, he started that way. And Jonathan would be that guy that in practice, you know, he'd be looking at me in the eyes and you're coaching him. You could be coaching him hard. And his eyes would get big. His head would be nodding. And next play, he'd try to give it back to you and turn around and say, coach, I get that right. And mm -hmm. if he wasn't sure, he'd stay after practice and say, coach, could you walk me through that? I want to make sure I have that for tomorrow's practice or for the game plan for the game we have tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, and guys see those kind of things. And it's just really been, and his recruiting class was, all similar that way. Trent Forrest, who ended up staying here four years and is now a two-way player for the Utah Jazz. You know, he was the all-time wins program in Florida State history for a four-year player. Mm. And he same way. It was all about winning for him. Fiondu Cabangeli, who was with us for three years, who we when we offered him a scholarship, Binghamton University was the only school that had offered him at that time. And he ended up being a first-round pick last year. Mm. And they wanted to win, and they wanted to be coached, and they wanted to play with other good players. But winning was important to him. Mm -hmm. Great story I tell you about Fiondu is we're in the uh, round of 32 his last year, uh, two years ago, mm -hmm. uh, and we're playing John Morant in his last game. And with about 10 minutes to go, we had got the lead up to over 20, 
and he knows his rotation is, is Chris Kamaji is about to come in for him. And as the eight minute timeout happens and the guys are jogging over to the bench, he comes right to my ear and says, coach, don't put me into crit to uh, Don't put me into Chris asked to come out of the game. Fiondo actually was on the bench at that time. And Chris was coming off the court. He said, coach, we're going to the sweet 16 and I want Chris to be very positive because I want to win. I want to see if we can get to the final four. And he said, don't, don't put me in the game until Chris asked to come out of the game. And because uh, we're, we're going to win this game. I don't need to play anymore. If Chris wants to play the whole eight minutes, I'm okay with it. And when you get guys like that, you know, you start seeing the spirit that, that just uh, makes it fun to come to practice every day. You know, it makes it fun to, uh, even after a tough loss, to, to look in the locker room and know how much the guys care and know that we're, we're going to be okay. We'll bounce back and be ready for the next one because these guys genuinely have their heart in the right place. Let's talk real quick about those distractions that, that you mentioned a second ago. I mean, Florida, Florida State's a great school, um, but there are a lot of distractions for, for young men, especially in Florida, um, you know, with the beaches and all that. Uh, kind of what programming do you have set up for your guys? You know, what, what type of professionals do you bring in to talk about dealing, you know, with agents, you know, girls, parties, balancing schoolwork, you know, all the stuff that, you know, a high profile athlete, you know, at, at, a, at an athletic school like Florida State, um, has to deal with in addition to uh, to the college stuff. Well, th- th- those are good points, and we, uh, you know, Coach Hamilton has been doing this at the highest level for almost fifty years now. Starting, you know, cut his teeth for twelve years at Kentucky, where that's the biggest fishbowl you can probably be in as an athlete. Yeah, uh, there, and so you know, he's not experimenting anymore. So how we live, uh, he don't let guys live all over town. We live in the same same floor, same apartment complex. Along with the players living in those apartments, there's grad assistants and managers that live there to kind of be eyes all the time that sometimes our players don't realize. Those guys are taught how to have relationships with the players and also how to let us know if, hey, coach, you may want to check on so-and-so or you may want to come by the apartments tonight, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, whatever's going on. And and so we have those things in place. Our athletic department uh, years ago because of the the, uh, notoriety of the football program back uh, years ago when some of the football things were, were even crazier than they are now in terms of agents and going to the NFL. You know, we have a, uh, a person on campus who's all about agent relationships, building uh, information and intelligence into our guys, uh, documenting all the stuff that, you know, everything that if an agent wants to reach out to any of our players, they have to go through uh, the state of Florida legally first, because there's the laws in the state of Florida and mm-hmm. then register on our campus and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, most agents have learned now with Coach Hamilton. He's done this all the way back to when he had Sam Bowie and, and Sam Bowie ended up being the second pick in the draft. And, you know, and Coach managed a whole lot of things that people didn't, agents didn't find out about Sam's health situation and stuff because Coach is going to protect his players and make sure they're doing the right things and getting the best opportunities. That, you know, he's very hands-on with all of our players in those, in those areas. Uh, and then we, uh, you know, we're a little old school. Once we start preseason practice, uh, we have a curfew every night and we rotate as coaches and we go through and check it and talk to our guys and just kind of give them a, you know, not like we're trying to put them in a military state, but just, you know, let them know that we care about them being successful. Let's make good decisions. And, you know, we'll just go by and sit on the couch, talk a little bit, maybe watch a little film with them, you know, and just uh, keep building relationships with guys in all those areas. And then we also have a couple of things that our president of our university put in place that, uh, One's called Real Men and one's called Life, which is L-Y-F-E, which is Leaders uh, Yearning for Excellence. Mm-hmm. And their programs 
designed for all male athletes. One of them is designed specifically for the African-American athlete to how to grow and be responsible. They do all kinds of um, how to deal with uh, finances, how to deal with uh, going to a formal dinner, uh, how to deal with uh, domestic situations and uh, getting out of yourself, not caught up in situations where you're going to have Title IX in there because you did something dumb with a person of the opposite sex. I mean, they're constantly, and they have something every Tuesday night and it's a, they bring in some great speakers, former athletes that played at Florida state, people that have screwed up in life uh, that come in and talk to them about, Hey, how I screwed up my career. Uh, And they just keep tabs on these guys. And and then they also really help them get into the the community and, uh, and give back to themselves in community service, uh, which I always think is a, is a big thing because when kids, when college athletes start realizing how much young kids look up to them, I think it also gives them a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a expectation that, Hey, I, I need to watch how I act because mm-hmm. I don't want to disappoint those little kids that I got to go see next Tuesday morning when I read for the fifth grader at such and such elementary. <laughs> each one to each one. Last question, then we'll move on to the, the practice section. So one of our coaches, Daryl Green went to DeMatha. He went to DeMatha instead of going to the local public high school and, you know, after the first year, he's playing behind uh, Joseph Forte. And I'm blanking on there was another NBA player on that roster. Um, and, you know, he was coming back from practice with a bad attitude. Like, look, I want to transfer, you know, back home, got to go to this school, da, da, da. And his family was like, look, you wanted to be here. You wanted to be in the situation. You're saying you're better than the guys playing ahead of you. Then show it in practice. Like, we're, we're not we're not dealing with this. Um, that was, you know, in the nineties, you know, it's obviously much different now. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, the last time we spoke about a player that, that, that played for you, um, that had a, a breakout game and his father quit his job, uh, the next Monday, you know, you can't control people, um, within an athlete's circle. Um, but how do you manage, you know, those conversations, especially if you think that those expectations are, you know, really hurting the, uh, the, the athlete that that's in your program. Well, again, it goes back to, again, Coach Hamilton's understanding of human nature and how he tries to develop his entire program. He has got to be the most proactive coach. He doesn't wait for parents to call him. <laughs> and as his as assistant coaches, he breaks the team up with, we call them personal coaches. And how many ever you get, four or five or six, depending on how big the roster is that year. You know, And your job is to meet with each of your guys at least once a week. Usually he wants you to meet twice a week. Uh, and talk about life and not just about basketball, but also, you know, once or twice a month, check in with their parents, have a conversation. And as players play good or play bad, Coach Hamilton's actually calling the parents himself before they can call him with any complaints or any uh, overjoyed excitement uh, just to keep them either grounded or keep them understanding where their child is in the process. Uh, and I think a lot of coaches shy away from doing those kind of things. And he'll have hard conversations. I mean, he'll have conversations that, you know, some people would lose their mind over him. And, and he has the way of getting people through those uh, high anxiety convers- you know, comments they're making and get them down to realize that, you know, your parental bias is making you skewed on how you're viewing the situation where your son is right now. Mm. And because he has a just a, uh, I, I tell people this all the time, Aaron, as good a basketball coach as he is, he's a far greater molder of people mm-hmm. uh, and his ability to have people skills uh, and get people to see the bigger picture when right then they're acutely focused on, oh, my child's fixing to be all this. We've got it made now. And he has the ability to have those conversations 
And that's why he has relationships long after kids play for us. And so we work very hard on those things. And uh, we, 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 we tell kids in the recruiting press, we are recruiting you to play. We're going to, after you get through your first summer, we're going to look at where you are in terms of what our knowledge is and, and what we, you know, this year's being the hardest because we didn't have the chance to have that full summer to really evaluate where everybody is because of the pandemic. So yeah. it's a little harder right now, but we're still working our way, grinding our way through that uh, and getting our guys ready. And then each one of the coaches, we develop with something called the box. And in that box, we'll, uh, we, we give them three things they got to focus on to start the year. And then we meet on these things weekly and they can change three mm -hmm. things. Basketball wise, they should be totally focused on. And you'll be shocked how your production will come up. If you just get lost in this, instead of worrying about what the box score looks at the end of it. Mm -hmm. The second thing is academically. So you, you know, I, I tell guys all the time, the biggest way to get yourself behind the curve as a player development guy is having duress and stress from going to the academic emergency room. So we give guys same goals and stay on top of, meeting them so they can stay focused where that doesn't become as we get to the end of the semester we're fixing to play and the exams are coming now all of a sudden they're having to leave practice early miss practice stay up late to finish something because they didn't stay uh, into our plan that we talked about academically and we have we actually talk socially i mean we we talk about things about girlfriend relationships uh you know social things that are going on in the city uh life as a college student and we give them three things or four things, depending on, you know, where they are. And, and we, we, we really build out and talk about every area of their development. And those changes over the course of the year, the basketball stuff could change. The academic stuff could change. You know, even the social things could change. And depending on where they are in the relationship with their girlfriend, we try to talk to their girlfriends that if they're exclusively with somebody. We try to get to know those people so that we can, uh, you know, just help guys not make bad decisions. That, as we tell them all the time, five seconds can ruin your entire career. One bad decision in five seconds. So you have to be on top of your vision all the time of where you want to be. And we, and we use the term, we don't want the 32-year-old or the 30-year-old version of you to be mad at the 20 or the 22-year-old version of you because of the decisions you made. Uh, because you're going to get to that point, you're going to look back, and you're either going to be real happy with how you handled being 20, mm -hmm. or you're going to be really, really angry. And the 40-year-old guy is going to be even more mad at you because it's going to keep building up inside of you. So stay, stay locked into understanding where you're going to be at 30 and 40 and 50 and uh, not just how uh, the emotions of the moment make you feel when you're 18, 19, 20. Mm. Mm. Uh, let's talk, you know, during the pandemic, things have obviously been, you know, different from, from every year that you've coached, I'm assuming. Uh, talk about um, what your practice looks like. Uh, you know, I, I read a quote from you that said that the hardest thing to do in coaching is to build team chemistry. So, um, you know, describe what they look like, you know, favorite drills that, that you guys do every day and, you know, how that's like an integral part of your program. Well, I think the, not so much drills, but it's also the, uh, the activities we do in terms of team building and uh, chemistry building in terms of getting our guys to talk mm -hmm. amongst themselves with having real talk. Uh, we have a team psychologist that comes in and the one thing we haven't been able to do this year, because of COVID, we had to do most of our uh, our meetings through Zoom, and I don't think uh, you get the same dynamic through a Zoom as you do when you're all sitting in a, in a room in a circle and everybody's got to look at each other and you know you're asked to answer hard questions about what's going on in your in your mind and your emotions and in your uh, the pressure that you're feeling, whether it's internally or from from outside. 
Uh, and so we haven't had to have those things. And then we, we work really hard on, on doing some little things. If you, if you watch us practice, when we first start practice every day, you look like and think that, uh, man, they do some stuff that don't look real serious at times. Mm-hmm. But we do some things to try to get everybody bought into to having some joy about that day. And because uh, I don't believe you can be successful in anything in life if you're not deriving joy from it. So mm-hmm. we talk to our guys all the time about leadership is where you actually breathe spirit into somebody else and uh, and you got to create that joy within yourself to try to make sure somebody else is having a good day. And so we'll do some things and I'm, you know, I can't give you all the, all the secret sauce, but <laughs> we do a lot of things and, you know, between every drill we're doing, we're doing something where there's a, uh, we haven't done as much, especially back in the, you know, when this was coming back of just dapping and talking and we'll, we'll stop and we'll have a, we'll have a, uh, a conversation about what we just did or what we just saw, or if somebody had a bad period, you know, let's talk about this. Why did you have a bad period right now? What did your teammates see? And uh, what, what do you, how can your teammates help you? What can the coaches do better here? So we, we actually face those things before they can fester and get to the locker room and a kid be all down in the dumps mm. and, uh, and, and goes back to the, uh, to the apartment and, you know, already wanting to quit and go home just because he had a bad day because he's trying to learn something. Yeah, and, you know, and Coach Hamilton has such a uh, an innate sense about stuff. There's been days we've had really, I thought, really good practices, and he'll say you know, as he's walking off the court, he'll say, "Hey, when you go home tonight, just go by the apartments and go by so and so's room." I said, "Well, my coach, I thought he had a pretty good day today." He said, "Now, nah, someone right with him, just just go by, sit down, ask him how he's doing, just but you know, with it privately." Mm-hmm. And a hundred percent of the time in my 25 years, when he's asked me to do that, I've gone in there and while wow, that kid had his dog had died or somebody was sick at home or, you know, he'd done something, had not done well on a test that day or there was something going on with him that the coach was just able to read. And even though it looked like he was having a pretty good practice and he was putting on a good, good, uh, good face for that day. But, you know, coach can just do that. And, and, and coach is just, like I said, his people skills are, are off the charts in terms of how high his intellect is in that area. Got you. Uh, I read something about Coach Hamilton switching over the strength and conditioning program to to preserve the players' bodies. Um, you know, how has NBA load management and some of these you know scientific studies affected the program's like, a, approach to resting, practice time, off days, and stuff like that? Well, that's uh, that's become an issue, and I think one thing that we've actually done is we we in, in terms of recruiting, we've also put a big emphasis on recruiting are non-scholarship players. They mm. actually have become a, a great part of our program. And we really try to vet those guys out in a highlight. We, we look for guys that have Florida state in their heart. Mm. We look for guys that may be sons of coaches that want to go into coaching. Mm. Uh, we look for guys that uh, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they, they want to be, uh, maybe they're a, a legacy kid. We've had two or three kids that have been walk-ons that they weren't as good as their fathers, but they've come in and always wanted to be at Florida state and, they could have gone to a low major uh, or a division two or division three school, but mm. they wanted to be at Florida state. And mm. uh, so we've, we've had a, an unbelievable run of those guys here the last six or seven years. We, ha- we actually have four guys that are fifth year non-scholarship players that are in grad school this year that have wanted to be part of the program. And uh, they've been named, a couple of them have been named captains over the last two years mm. uh, because of their ability to make us better in practice, but also to be able to, and we, we, we kind of pair them up with guys and make them accountability partners. And yeah. along with coaches talking to guys when they come out of the game, as fellow players, their job is 
after a coach talks to them after they sub is make sure your accountability guy sits by you and also point out what you saw as a peer player. Uh, and what is that? So sometimes players will receive things more from their peers than mm -hmm. they will from the, from the authority. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, they've been, they've been just fantastic in that. And they give us a great look in our program and they are incredibly happy and they rarely get to play. Yeah. Uh, but coach, we treat them. We coach treats them just like they're all on scholarship. You know, they get to you know, get to travel gear, all that stuff, uh, be a part of everything that we do, uh, yeah. expectations to be a part of everything we do and to bring the same enthusiasm and energy and make sure we're not having a bad day in the locker room or on campus or in practice. And by doing that, what we've ended up doing by getting some guys that are, they're not ACC players, but they're good enough players. They give us real good looks in practice and they're very competitive and they yeah. go at and they talk a little trash at our guys and <laughs> they, 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 they kind of stick needles in, in the guys to try to get them juiced up in moments and score on them and, and make, and we let them make a little uh, enthusiastic part out of it and, and, and get the energy going in our scouting segments. Mm. And so we end up, they're getting a lot of reps in practice and taking some of the practice reps off of guys. And it also allows guys, you know, our, our first and second units to concentrate really just on learning our stuff. But a lot of times if you go first unit, second unit against each other and you got to teach each unit, what the other team's running to try to make it look real, you yeah. end up confusing guys even more. So that mm -hmm. group has been probably more of our load management thing. Now the strength and conditioning thing, uh, coach never, uh, we've always done that since uh, he got the Miami job. Mm -hmm. uh, we do a program called high intensity. Uh, our strength coach has been with us for 22 years. Uh, and he is like a uh, chemist in, the, in there. He, we do everything individually and yeah. it's all about building basketball players. We're not in there trying to see who can set the one max rep for a bench press or a squat. Uh, it's all about building joints that can handle the shock of basketball. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we, we, we've gone in 25 years since I've been with coach, since we, since he changed from what they were doing at Kentucky to what he started doing at the university of Miami, we've had one guy have an ACL injury in 25 years uh, wow. because we're not doing squats. We're not doing cleans. We're not doing stuff that, short football players and wrestlers can do and it works for them but guys that are six nine and seven feet tall don't have the uh the structure skeletal wise to to be able to do those things balance wise so we've created other parts of our weight program to get those muscles strong without putting the duress on those joints where the possibility of them having you know, major joint injuries has been a problem so far and i, I pray every day that uh, that continues to happen through the rest of our time at florida state let's talk real quick about the uh the I don't the offensive principles. I mean, we we could we could talk about that too. But I'm more interested in the defensive principles that that you have at Florida State, and one that I've I've heard has been attributed to you is that you always want to front the post. Uh, I was watching uh, your game, and it was a couple of the games, and it was sometimes to the point where like they were guarding, uh, you know, in the post, and they were looking at the basket. Uh, and I hadn't really seen that before. Talk about the advantages of fronting the post and some of your uh, defensive principles and. You know, because that is a really important part of what you guys do. Yeah, a lot of coaches. You know, I, the one year I wasn't with Coach Hamilton after the Wizards year, I was on the staff at Mississippi State. Hmm. And you're, the same questions you're asking, uh, Coach Stansberry is asking because he had a really talented big on the team at that time that had been a McDonald's All-American that was always in foul trouble. And I said, well, our bigs don't get in a lot of foul trouble when I was with Coach Hamilton. And uh, he said, well, don't y'all get killed on rebounding? And I showed him some of the techniques and, I said, Coach, it's going to be hard for you, but I promise you, if you do it, 
we're going to have a great year and, and big fellas going to stay on the floor and not be sitting on the bench in foul trouble in the first five minutes of each game. Mm-hmm. And what it does for you, it keeps your bigs out of foul trouble. It keeps the ball out of what we call the red zone in our, in our, um, our terminology and what the red zone is kind of like the old European trapezoid lane is kind of how we lay that out Okay. Uh, to try to keep the ball out of the, uh, the elbows and the high post all the way down to the short corner. Mm-hmm. And that uh, along with keeping it out of being thrown to a post player, it also allows you to have much better help on the way people are driving the ball nowadays. Uh, if you're playing top side or you're playing behind, pushing out in the low post, that guy's never in position to help on any kind of dribble drive situations. And it, mm-hmm. it really helps our, our, uh, our defense to get set against the dribble drive quicker because those guys are playing up and off bodies until they front. Uh, and then they can take angles to what we call defend the rim uh, and, uh, and be the secondary shot blockers uh, coming off the guy that was guarding the ball. So that's, that's why we do it is not just because we're trying to keep a big from catching the ball, but yeah. it really helps complete our defense to, to help on, uh, second being a, a help defender, both on middle drives and baseline drives. It also, I mean, your guys' help defense is phenomenal because if the big does catch, there's always the help guy right there underneath him, and then there's the big right behind him kind of sandwiching him in. And you guys do a pretty phenomenal job, too, of you know the, the guard at the top rotating to the closest uh, passing option to, to really make that – to really disrupt the flow of the offense. So I, I just had to ask a question about that. Um, what are some of your keys to relationship building? You know, how has that intentionality of, of that process changed over the course of your career? You know, how do you connect with guys and their families during their recruitment and also while they're, they're in Tallahassee? Well, I think uh, one of the first questions I asked Coach Hamilton when I was at the University of Miami with him in my early days, I said, Coach, I really want to – I heard all the legendary stories about his ability to recruit and he said, and I said, Coach, I really want to ask a lot of questions and learn how to recruit because I'm coming from being a high school coach. Mm. And he said, when you're, that my first year I didn't recruit, but uh, after my second year, I, he moved me up to become a full-time recruiter. And I've been mm. that ever since. Uh, he said, you're not going to have any problem recruiting because the number one thing in recruiting is being sincere. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's with any relationship you have, whether it's with your spouse or your girlfriend or, with your coworkers or just your friends is, are you genuine and sincere and can they figure, figure you out? And as I'm talking to recruits and their families on the, on the phone, I'll say, you know, usually I'll say the next phone call, I'm going to get coach Hamilton on the phone for, with you guys. And I said, you may not come play for us, but after five minutes of the conversation, you'll be texting me saying, coach, I feel like I could trust my, uh, my child with, with coach Hamilton mm. and, and everything that he does and says in our staffs the same way as is, is, is a built on trust. Uh, we're not going to tell people stuff we're not going to do. We're not going to exaggerate. Uh, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to tell them to guarantee this, that, or the other. Uh, but we'll tell you that this is what we've done for this player. Your, your son reminds us of this player. This is how our whole roster, if you want to call the parents of all our kids, you'll find out that what we say we're going to do, we're going to do. Mm. And if you, long as you sustain that and you don't ever back away from your word, that's how you end up having relationships because people know you're not lying to them. People mm. know you have their best interests at heart. And I, I tell all of my guys that are my personal players, and you know, guys that are going to be NBA players, I'll talk. I said, look, when you leave here, and I hope it's to the NBA as a high draft pick, I said, I want you to know you can have a relationship with me, that you can walk here on Friday, put a million dollars on my desk and say, Coach, I've got to be somewhere this weekend. Would you hold this for me? And when you come back on Monday to pick it up, you don't have to count it. 
And I tell him, I said, I'm the guy that's going to be in your corner that when you make it to the next level, you're never going to have to worry about doing something for me. Mm. You're, you're never going to buy me a meal. You're never going to give me a ticket. I got enough connections. If I'm coming to see you play, I can get in the building. You got to take care of your people. And mm. that's the kind of people you need to have in your, what I call them, your core board of directors for you personally. You want people in your personal board of directors that, mm. are, that, are, that, are, that are doing stuff for you that don't want anything back other than see you take it into your life, the rest of your life, and take care of the ones coming behind you. Mm. And that's the way our whole staff started with Coach Hamilton. And for my life growing up in a minister's home, this has kind of been my ministry thought. And I've had guys. Uh, I can tell you a lot of funny stories. You know, uh, they may know I'm out recruiting somewhere in their city, and they say, Coach, I hear you're in town. Can I come by when you're done with your recruit? When before you go to the hotel, we'll get something to eat. Mm-hmm. And they'll always think, they think they're going to get me on it. And they're still so – they still can't out slick the old guys because, you know, I, about halfway through the meal, I'll always get them. I say, man, I don't have too much iced tea. I got to go to the bathroom. You know, old guys got to go to the bathroom more than you young guys. And I'll pay the bill while they're there and they'll come back and we'll finish dessert or whatever. They'll always try to sit at the head of the table so they think they can get to the to the waitress or the waiter. And, Could I get the check, please? And they'll just smile at them and say, I'm sorry, sir. It's already been taken care of. And they'll start about, coach, man, I was going to take care. I said, I told you when you were in college trying to figure out how to get to help side and up the line on the line in our defense that you were never was going to take care of me. I can take care of myself. You're my guy and you need to take care of your people. You don't got to take care of me. I, I learned how to work and, 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 and manage my own finances. I don't, but coach, I owe you that. Don't worry about it. Give it to somebody else as a gift from me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, that's the, that, that's the way I look at how I deal with all of our players from the walk-ons to the, mm-hmm. the Patrick Williams of the world who just went as the fourth pick in the draft the other night. Yep. Uh, so you're the longest tenured assistant coach in the ACC and one of the best in the country. Um, talk about what you've learned uh, under Coach Hamilton. Talk about, you know, his ability as a leader. You've already talked about that, you know, right now, but kind of why his his players would really run through a wall for him, because you can really feel that. And I feel like on a national level, people are finally starting to catch up to that and see, you know, his ability. Um, you know, talk about what you've learned from him and, you know, how you've seen him grow over that time. Cause I'm sure he's not the same coach he was, you know, when, when he stepped on the floor with you in Miami. You know, you're not the first person that's asked me that question, especially here during the pandemic when more people have been using uh, social media and the internet to, to do more of these podcasts and inter- interviews and, and yeah. different things. And I'm actually trying to start putting a little outline together, you know, maybe one day when, when coach decide, I don't know, coach is going to outlive all of us. I mean, he's like the Benjamin Button of, of college basketball coaches. He looks like he's getting younger all the time. Yeah. And uh, the rest of us are aging miserably. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's, he has just a phenomenal p- piece of genetics, uh, whatever his mom and dad gave him. I and mean, it's, it's, uh, we need to all get a piece of that. Yeah. Uh, but I've been working on, you know, things that I've learned, leadership lessons I've learned from coach. And just, just a couple of them is, you know, uh, he always tells our players that the thing that that uh, has driven him his whole life was something his dad constantly pounded into his mind because when they were coming through, the only way they could make it was through education. They yeah. were deep into the time of segregation and, and really difficult times. And, you know, he's been a big voice for trying to help the racial divide in our country to get uh, closer together and to try to find some healing in our land today. And you know, the thing his dad always taught him is never let anybody outwork you. And he told him that as an athlete. He said, the coach can make a mistake. you got to work so hard that the coach can't make a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so 
Uh, the first thing I've learned is, you know, you, you just watch him and he's not one of the, you know, you hear about some of these insane, obsessed guys in our businesses. They expect everybody to be in the office at six in the morning and don't go home till after 11. And you got to be in before the head coach and you got to go, can't go home till the head coach leaves because uh, we're out working people. Well, I can promise you, nobody's out working coach Hamilton, but he don't put those kind of uh, guidelines and restraints on people. Hmm. He, he hires you and he expects you to get your job done. And he sets such an example and he is such a selfless leader that he doesn't want to take credit for anything. Mm. And the thing that I, I've learned most about him, Aaron, is you want to work for a guy like Coach Hamilton that when something goes wrong, and you rarely see this in anybody in, in coaching and in a lot of leadership situations, that he never blames what happened in the situation. He blames himself. So we could have something go wrong in a recruiting thing. And the first thing he'll say is, and you kind of say, Coach, man, I, 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 I can't believe we didn't get this one. He'll say, I should have helped you. do. I should have done more with this. I should have helped you with this. I, mm -hmm. I, I dropped the ball on this. If something goes wrong in a scouting report or in the, in the end of a game where we make a bad decision uh, or a player doesn't play very well that night for whatever reason, it's, it's always on him. It's my responsibility. Mm -hmm. We're going to be better because of this. And, mm -hmm. and it's never it's – never, you sorry this, why didn't you do that? I shouldn't, why do I have you on it? That conversation never happens mm. when you work for Coach Hamilton. It's always about how do we do this better? How do we get beyond this and go go find somebody? If we lost a recruit, how do we find somebody that fits us better? Let's believe that was divine providence and we weren't supposed to have that player and let's find who we're supposed to have. You know, in the same situation with games, that situation is going to come back up. Let's file it. Let's make sure next time it happens, we know how to, make that decision with more confidence and, uh, and and to go a little deeper into our film study and, and make sure we're prepared for that. And when you work for a guy like that, you know, it makes you want to work harder. It makes you want to not just go jump around and take anything that somebody comes at you about another opportunity mm -hmm. because those people are like, are, you know, those are like needles in haystacks. They're hard to find. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, he's, and there's a lot of other things I've been putting on there. He, he's like Dick Tracy. He's able to figure things out. Uh, and figure out who the people are, the key people are in recruiting, who are the key people in the administration, how to befriend them. I mean, it's just amazing the different leadership lessons I've learned from him on how to be a better leader in my home, how to be a better leader as a coach. And if the good Lord decides he wants me to be a head coach before I get too old, uh, if I get to be the lead, uh, CEO of a program like he is, how mm. much preparation I'll have and how seamless that transition will be. Mm. Talk about your, your playing style. So I, I got curious and I went through um, since 2007, you've only had three guys average over 17 points per game in 18 years. So Dwayne Bacon, uh, Tony Douglas, and uh, Al Thornton. Um, I got to stop you right there before you finish the question. You didn't uh, do enough. You didn't do enough statistical research. Oh, no. Oh, what I do. <laughs> well, our, our very first ACC first team all-conference player was a gentleman named Tim Pickett back in 03 and 04 who, who averaged over 17, averaged 16 and a half. As he was a junior college transfer. Yeah. And uh, uh, so we've had you know, a lot of guys. And, again, uh, as you ask that question, you also – we've had Bernard James and Solomon Oliver lead the league in, uh, in block shots. We've had two mm -hmm. or three guys lead the league in three-point shooting. We've had three guys be six men of the year. So none of that stuff happens every year. And yeah. you, what, you, what you do as a program is you build, you build what guys can do best and, and keep them away from what they do worse. And that's one of our, our phrases we use with our guys all the time is do what you do best and do what you do most. 
That's mm. how you become a great player. Do mm. what you do best and do what you do most. And don't 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 make the game your individual workout. So, <laughs> I like that. And so we get guys to buy into that. And, the, you know, the success we're having with guys having great opportunities at the NBA, we're also having guys having great success playing internationally mm. uh, in EuroLeague, EuroCup, VTB, and the Champions Leagues. Uh, guys are having really, really nice lives over there uh, and enjoying playing at a high level. But now I'll let you finish your, your, your question <laughs> on, on playing style. I mean, you you answered it because I was going to ask you, you know, how you get players to buy in, you know, despite averaging less stats than they could elsewhere. Um, but I, I, there, there's, there is a specific answer to that, though, because I wanted to make sure that you know, I always <laughs> tell people, all the young guys that say they're statistical analysis guys, I always give them this line. I said, you could take statistics and make people believe Germany won World War II, but they got their behind beat. They lost in a blowout at the end of the day. Uh, but when you give them statistics, you can make them think, how much land they got, how many casualties here, and how many that, that they yeah. won. They didn't win. Bottom line is, do you win or lose? And uh, with statistics, it's, it's not just about that. But, you know, we educate our guys. We have a proactive approach with their with them and their families. Mm. Uh, we take all the stuff, the NBA, because we have a lot of former players and staff members who work in the, in the NBA. Mm. And we got former players who are general managers and directors of basketball operations and uh, assistant general managers. And so we talk to them all offseason about how are they – coming up with who they think they're going to draft. And, and one of the big things they talk about is efficiency. Mm. So we educate all our guys on that stat they use called PER, player efficiency ratings. Mm. And we take in, you know, Jonathan Isaac was one of the big uh, advanced guys on that with us is Jonathan had some health issues. He had to get over during his freshman year, had a some asthma stuff and everything. Mm-hmm. NBA never figured that out because they all oh, they're, why they're not playing anymore. This Jonathan Isaac, he was a top 10 recruit. You know, they're holding him back. Well, if you look, we kept we knew exactly how many minutes he could play before he needed to come out and take his asthma medicine. We taught our managers how to hand him a towel where nobody could ever see how he was rubbing his face. He was actually taking medicine. He wasn't just t- wiping the sweat off of his face. Wow. And we had we had a coach. Where was Jonathan in the statistical column at the time? So when Jonathan went back in, we'd run something for him to make sure we knew how his per 40-minute numbers were going to play out. And as the season went on, his per 40-minute numbers took him to the top two or three guys in the last 10 years of mm. production based on per 40. So he was moving up to draft boards, averaging 12 points a game uh, because we, and it, we explained all that to Jonathan. We explained that to his brother. And we talked about that with Patrick Williams this year. We went through the whole deal. Coach and, uh, and Coach Young on our staff went and met before the season last year with his family, said, this is our plan. This is the things that are the labels that Patrick has. We're not going to let them see this. And I distinctly remember – and I'm sure after Wednesday night that that conversation was even more happy in mom and dad's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, we had just won at NC state. Uh, uh, Patrick is from North Carolina. So we had a lot of family there. Mm-hmm. And as we're all going to the bus to go to the plane and come back home, we had, had that little area where the families can visit coach comes out of his media press conference, sees uh, Patrick's mom and says, our plan couldn't be working any better than, than when we talked about it in the preseason. And she said, coach, we're so happy. And I know she was really happy on Wednesday night because uh, <laughs> NBA team saw when they looked at what he did in the first third of the year, the how he was playing at the last third of the year, mm-hmm. they saw that dude had unbelievable potential because we didn't let him be in situations where people were going to say, because his label out of high school was that he play hard, he loved the game. What was his motor like? So we always put him in situations where he didn't have a choice, but to play really hard, a lot of energy, a lot of activity. 
come out before you get where you slip back to because whenever you get fatigued, you always go back to what you've done the most. Mm. So we would monitor all that and make sure his sock out now gets yourself ready. Now you're going by the end of the year. He was playing well above starters minutes. And as mm. coach said to one of the reporters the other night after the draft, they said, well, how, why didn't you start him? Coach said, well, he finished every game. Mm. And you know, yeah. I mean, people that know basketball understand that's way more important than yep. not, you know, who starts in as important as you know, who the coaches trust. Right? And we won 11 two possession games last year and we've won nine overtime games in a row. Well, you can look at who the coaches trust by who plays in those situations, not who gets to come out there and, and do the little rub themselves off and all that stuff they do on, on pregame introductions. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about next year. You know, previously, you know, you lost Jonathan Isaac and uh, Xavier Rattan Mays and Dwayne Bacon. You still made it to the Elite Eight. Uh, you lost five seniors last year in Cobb and Gelly. Uh, and finished top five in the country and we're ACC regular season champs. And I think had a real shot at the national title. Um, your team will be successful this year if what? Well, uh, you know, we got to stay healthy. The first thing with any team is you got to stay healthy. Because mm-hmm. I say this, you know, two years ago, uh, I go to my, my, my grave uh, this past year because of COVID taking that team's chances out. And the year before that, uh, Phil Kofer, who was our leading returning scorer, who had been prominently on the Elite Eight team, uh, on the last play of the last inter-squad scrimmage of preseason practice, comes down and is, it wasn't even a meaningful play. He just kind of got tangled up with a teammate and had a fracture uh, in, in one of the bones in his foot mm-hmm. and had to miss a bunch of weeks, and he never came back and played well. And then our first-round game in the NCAA tournament, uh, while we're playing, we got to the ACC championship game that year, uh, and didn't win it, but we were in, in that game. And uh, we set him out against Vermont because his foot was bothering him a little bit. And mm-hmm. while we were playing, his father, who was his hero, had been an NFL player. We knew he wasn't doing very well. Uh, he died. And as soon as we got through with the postgame um, team talk and they opened up the locker room for the media, uh, somebody called from home and told him his father had died while we were playing. And uh, he lost it. And you know, some of our guys had never seen anybody go through that kind of anguish and grief. And that was a real emotional uh, time for our team. And then we had to have some counseling come in and talk to guys about how to help their teammate. And we turned around and played great in the next round against uh, Murray State with John Morant in that game. But our our energy – and then he couldn't go uh, to the Sweet 16 because he had to be at his father's funeral. And uh, our other kind of high-risk three-point maker was David Nichols, who had come in as a grad transfer, and he had got hurt. The team that had kept him from making the NCAA tournament, he was playing in that league, was Vermont. He had played at Albany and graduated from there as a grad transfer. They actually kind of rolled his leg up, which I always thought was a little bit of a, a dirty play. I can't prove it, but it's my opinion. Mm. Uh, and, and they gave him a high ankle sprain, and he was done. Mm. Uh, if we'd have made it to the Final Four, he wouldn't have been able to play. Mm. And uh, we ended up losing to Gonzaga in the Sweet 16. But I'll, if that team would have been healthy with Phil the whole year, David doesn't get hurt in the first round of the – of the tournament, that team had a chance to make the final four because we had a lot of dudes coming back that had been big roles in the, in the elite eight the year before. And they wanted to get back because we were a minute and a half away from going to the final four the year before. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that year and then this past year, and that, the big reason I thought uh, not just with our veterans like Trent Forrest and, and MJ Walker and, and Devin Vassell's improvement, but because of Patrick Williams and our other freshman, Balsa Koprovica's improvement, mm. They were not playing like freshmen anymore yeah. down the stretch those last five to eight games of the year. 
that we were really going to be a problem for – it really didn't matter what kind of matchups we got. We were going to be able to play against any style, uh, against any type, type of lineup uh, because of the, their development. Um, and so uh, that's, that's water behind us. So we got to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing we got to have is our chemistry has got to stay tight. You mm-hmm. can't, you can't, there's nobody going to win a national title or go to the final four or even get to the NCAA tournament. If you don't have a good locker room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our new guys that are coming to the roster this year, they've got to buy into what we try to do from an emotional perspective. Uh, and everybody's got to continue to be happy for each other. And, and not, you know, sometimes when you have great success, like we had on the draft last week, uh, sometimes guys can get, Oh, wow. I played with Patrick and, and uh, Devin and, I got to be able to do that now. So they put more pressure on themselves. It says to stay in the course. So we've got to have all those kind of emotional IQ components got to stay in place. Mm. And, and then uh, Scotty Barnes, who's a, an elite recruit coming in. Monster. A lot of people are not going to uh, believe it till they see it when we get the chance to start playing, but he's going to be our, our primary facilitator. Mm. Even though we, we let any of four guys who rebound, push the ball, uh, we're going to let him be uh, in that Trent Force role because he's got an incredible basketball IQ. He's got a great charisma about himself, great court vision. Uh, and then Ray Evans, who was uh, our backup point guard last year, who those guys can play together a lot, so it doesn't take pressure on either one of them to be the primary ball handler. And uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but Ray uh, actually had a higher points per possession for our team when he was on the floor at the point than, than uh, Trent Forrest, who was such a vital part of closing out games for us mm-hmm. and winning so many games for us in his career. So. Yeah. Those two guys got to stay healthy. They got to stay and able to handle critical situations when that moment, every game has a moment that decides winning or losing. And those primary ball handlers got to be those guys that have that innate sense of how to seize that moment or to take away the other team's moment uh, and, and to separate your team from winning and losing because of uh, how you react and anticipate those moments. So those mm-hmm. are probably the, 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 the three biggest things for us. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to see uh, Anthony Polite, you know, progress. I mean, he was an absolute dog defensively at the point of attack, you know, picking up you know, some people nine, 94 feet, you know, forcing 10 second calls, you know, making them dribble on them off its foot out of bounds in a tight game. I mean, I, I really like his game. So uh, talk to me about the, da- the draft process this year, you know, the adjustments, the uncertainty. Um, and uh, were you expecting the the florist uh, spot in the uh, in the programming? Because that's something you, you knew was coming. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, I, I, as all the teams are doing their due diligence and calling us about teams, you know, you know, the one thing that made Pat such a good teammate, and a lot of kids don't get this anymore, is you know he had had to work in the family business when he was a kid. So mm. responsibility, being somewhere on time, getting the deliveries to places on time. Uh, making sure the, the uh, business was secure when it was closing time, making sure the business was clean all yeah. during the day. And those were things that his family business had instilled in him before he, he came to college. So seeing if his locker was going to be messy or if his apartment was messy, you know, that wasn't something that he was unaccustomed to. Yeah. And so I thought that was a real positive for him that he had actually had a job where he wasn't just going and traveling around the country all the time with basketball events is, you know, he had to, for his family to, to be successful, you know, they had to all participate and ship in kind of like in olden days when people grew up on the farms, you know, everybody had to, they had bigger families back in those days because you had to have people to work on the farm and that's how they had to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm glad they actually included that. Uh, I don't know who, if his agent promoted that or the uh, ESPN <laughs> picked up on that, but it caught uh, me by I surprise. Think sure. <laughs> I think it's a badge of honor for him and his family yeah. because I think if more kids, 
would get a job when they're younger. It would make their transition to trying to be long-term basketball players easier because a lot of times mm. they don't realize the reality of, of that. You know, when you get there, it is a job when you play professionally. It's not just an AAU tournament or a, or a high school game or a college game anymore. I really liked, you know, Devin Vassell's fit in San Antonio was probably my favorite fit of the draft as far as what the player brings and uh, the, the the program, the the organization they're going into. And I really like Trent signing with Utah. Talk about uh, those two and, you know, how excited you are for them going forward. And Devin's another great going back, going back to my five steps to get into a winning program. You know, Devin, mm-hmm. when we offered him, uh, he had, I think, Presbyterian, Stetson, and North Florida were the only offers he had at the time. Mm. And some other people tried to get involved. You know, it's kind of like our business is a little bit the herd mentality. Once <laughs> one high major offers and everybody else starts calling and thinking they got an offer. Yeah. Uh, and they may never have seen the kid play, but, you know, we, you know, we saw him in high school. Uh, we saw him in the back gyms. He didn't play on one of the shoe company sponsored teams. He played on the local team in Atlanta. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and we felt he fit what we liked, long, versatile guys that uh, compete, uh, that can play multiple spots, can defend p- multiple spots, uh, wants to win, played for a really good high school coach. In fact, his high school coach was a guy I worked a five-star camp with uh, 30 years ago, and we'd known each other. And, and uh, uh, Coach Young on our staff, uh, who'd been coaching in, in Georgia, I also knew Coach Arrington really well, uh, and also knew Coach Arrington's brother, who they were both really – prominent successful coaches in the state of Georgia. Mm. And so that was important to us. Again, getting guys that come out of well-coached programs uh, matter to us in our recruiting decisions. Mm. And uh, so Devin would come in and our first thought was, cause he was kind of, you know, just frail, his physical maturation had not really started kicking in. I think he had, you know, and coach CY always talks about, he had one hair on his chin when he, <laughs> when he came in the summer. And uh, so uh, that was all comes so we talk maybe do like Fiondu Cabangeli did and red shirt and let's get your body right. Mm-hmm. But as we went through the summer program and we went through preseason practice, we started realizing that there's going to come a point in this season that his curve is going to allow him to make a big contribution to this team. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, coach Hamilton and our staff were again, right on that. He made some big plays. He, he went into a game against Clemson when they had one of the leading scores in the league, Marquise Reed, and Devin goes in at six seven with those six uh, ten wingspan arms, and uh, Marquise was only about six two six three, and it changed the game for us because Marquise couldn't get good looks over over Devin as a freshman. And you know, we're playing in the quarterfinals of the ACC tournament. We're down three with was under five seconds. I don't remember the exact shot clock, and he's part of the squad that's on the floor. And he was one of the options, and he ended up being the option that our inbounder Trent went to, and. He caught the thing with great shot preparation, uh, finished it, didn't run out of the opportunity, tied the game up, and we won the game in overtime. Ended up beating Virginia, who won the national championship. Hmm. Uh, we beat them in the semifinals by double figures and then lost a tough game with Duke and uh, with Zion Williamson and those guys in the finals. Nice. Uh, but, you know, you know, Devin doing those things. And he went from having five DMPs as a freshman uh, to being the 11th pick in the draft. Because every day, and I tell I tell all our new players every day in practice, Devin was like Jonathan. He's looking at you. He's processing information. He's asking questions. He's asking, did he get it right? He's staying after practice. He's coming before. Mm. He'll take the video home with him. You'll get a text video from him where he screen. He's used his phone to take a video of the video to <laughs> send you that one clip. Coach, what was I supposed to do on this play? How was I supposed to rotate in this defensive possession? Mm. And that goes back to those three components I tell guys have to be high in 
to get there. And Devin checked all those boxes and he got it, he got his shots up. He never, he never shirked from getting in the gym, even when he was tired and playing big minutes. Mm-hmm. He stayed on top of his shots, staying tight. And he shot 42% for his two years at Florida State, which again, that efficiency number matters in the NBA. Mm-hmm. You can you, you go back to talking about you know, some guys can go places and take a lot of shots, but is it better for you to take eight three-point shots and make three or eight, uh, three or four, or is it better for you to go someplace and get 14 shots and make four or five? Yeah. The NBA is going to look at the smaller number because your efficiency is better than mm. because you made more shots, but you took more shots. Mm. That doesn't make you more attractive to what they think will translate into the NBA. Mm. Got you. Got you. Let's talk. I, I only got two or three more questions with you. I'd take it up a lot of your time. This has been great though. Um, let's, let's talk about what are the, the you know, as a, as a, veteran on the coaching staff you know you need to really move go ahead and say i'm I'm an old dude you go ahead and say (laughs) i was trying to find the right question i wasn't struggling with that um what have you learned about it's very kind of you i'm very gracious (laughs) veteran. what have you learned about speaking up with suggestions for adjustments versus you know trusting the game plan i'm sure that there's times where you know you really think that you know uh, you know, cutting back door more, more often the offense is going to be more effective and, you know, you're, you're alone on that Island and, you know, just not going with, with your decision. What have you learned about um, just, you know, trusting, you know, the process as far as that staff while also not being afraid to speak up, you know, cause closed miles don't get fed. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, coach Hamilton gets pretty intense sometimes. Well, surprisingly, he doesn't, he's a guy that he's always processing information. Okay. Uh, I could probably tell you in 25 years, where he's kind of had a uh, had a one of those moments where he kind of blacks out and loses it. It's less than one hand in 25 years. Okay, uh, that's that's not how he operates a business. And again, we we have a staff that's very very connected. Uh, Coach Charlton Young on our staff, uh, he actually he, he uh, it's not it's not a joke, but it comes to sound like it's really funny. He said I was the first white guy that ever intimidated him uh, because <laughs> in uh, in 1988 he was he came to the five-star camp that I was one of the camp resident coaches in. And that was when uh, the recruiting rankings were just starting to become vogue at that time. And okay. he had not been ranked. And the one guy that was doing with it at the time was a guy named Bob Gibbons. Yep. Bob Gibbons was at the camp. So he's coming from Miami. He's been in the, in the hard streets of Miami in a, in a difficult neighborhood mm-hmm. and had to compete and fight. And, and he wanted to prove himself. So he's out there uh, in an afternoon game just going at dudes, you know, taking cheap shots, talking incredibly crazy noise and talking and just <laughs> out of his mind, but kind of showing people, I got this guy. He's not better than me. Yeah. And there was a timeout happens. And I just walk out on the court. And I said, dude, do you see all these college coaches sitting over here? You are killing yourself. You can't do that anymore. He said, coach, I've never had a, a white guy challenge me before. And we, he remembered that. It. And it's, it's funny. We still have the paper. And when people come on campus for visits, uh, the the orange white all star game, he is in that game as a player, and I'm coaching in the, in the all star game with him. We we go back that far, yeah. uh, and Coach Hamilton had just was taking over at the University of Miami mm-hmm. and tried to recruit him at the University of Miami, but the program wasn't very good when Coach took over, and so Charlton yeah. wasn't going to go there. So we've known each other and kind of you know back when he was starting out at Jacksonville and Northeastern, and head coach at Georgia uh, Southern. Uh, we would kind of look out for each other. He was in that little circle of people that, you know, see why I call and say, Hey, you need to look at this guy. I can help you here. And 
and we see, hey, there's this guy that's he's not good enough for us, but you should really be recruiting him. Mm. And uh, that that relationship's been going on for 30 plus years. And then Steve Smith, who just took Dennis Gates' uh, spot on our staff this past year, you know, he was on staff uh, with uh, with CY at uh, at Georgia Southern. Uh, he's a military background, was in the army, just a great, great human being and a great mentor of men. So it's not hard for us to talk to each other about, uh, you hear some staffs that are up and arguing and getting the threatening each other. We just talk about, you know, and we've learned, I kind of learned it from coach Hamilton. This is how I even approach coach Hamilton all these years. I'm going to, I'm going to bring up an idea in the point of some, probably some kind of question. Mm-hmm. So that whoever's responsible, whether it's the coach making the decision or if Coach Smith or Coach Young have the scout, that as they process it, they're going to feel like it's their idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Coach Hamilton is the math. That's another one of the things in my leadership lessons I'm starting to kind of put together. If it ever comes to that point where I can formulate it into being not just a dumb ball coach and make it maybe a, <laughs> a book to his uh, legacy when he gets through coaching is, you know, he's the best at, at talking to people. And whatever he wants them to do, he makes them feel like it's their idea. Mm. And uh, so I, I try to steal from that every day. And so if I think there's something coming up, you know, I'll write it out. I'll, I'll draw a play up or an action coming up with somebody who we're going to play. And mm. while he's out doing a press interview or meeting with administration, I'll go in and set it on his chair and his desk and say, Coach, what do you think about doing this versus so-and-so? Instead of going in and having some big meeting about it and just letting him, because he's an incredible mind, he, he thinks through every option. He's like Bobby Fisher, the great chess champion. He can think 66 moves ahead before he takes his finger off the chess piece. Yeah. And so you give him that time. Uh, he usually makes a great decision. And, and uh, you, know, you don't take them all, but it, I think it makes for a, a much better dynamic of a working relationship when you do it that way. Another question I have a scouting report you had prepped and you thought it was a winner, but you never got to use it. Maybe, you know, you were in a tournament game and you lost before the game that you had prepped. Do you, do you have an answer for that one? Yeah. You mean never, you know, whatever we come up with a scouting report, whichever coach is in charge of that scout. I mean, mm-hmm. once we sit and talk about that coach is going to come in and say, this is what I think after watching all these films and breaking things down and doing our, our, our tendency analytics and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about it as a group and then we're going to, we pretty much live with it at that point. We don't ever go into something and then, then abandon that. Do we make adjustments and tweaks and do we have, and we talk about this with our kids and this is how we're starting guarding this. And this is our backup plan. Gotcha. So we have in our scouting reports, we try to have contingency situations. If we're not doing a very good job or they're really prepared for this. Yep. And we try to have enough things in our systems that, we're able to come up with something that they weren't really prepared for. If there's something we've been doing a lot of lately that mm-hmm. they uh, are kind of cutting us up on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I never really gone into a game where I felt like uh, I couldn't use what I watched film on. And I've been doing this too long. It's <laughs> kind of one of my strengths is to be able to, to watch film and figure out what you're trying to do when yeah. you're trying to do it. And hopefully we'll have enough talent and enough commitment from our players. Cause it doesn't matter how much I know is how much I can get them to know. Yeah, uh, and so they can their mind can be freed up and play with the athleticism and length that we try to recruit. So I, I really don't think I have an answer for that one. Uh, I meant more like if you know, say you were supposed to play in the ACC tournament, and you were playing against you know Syracuse, and you're supposed to play at NC State next, and you're the one doing the scout for NC State, uh, but you ended up losing to Syracuse, and not being able to use it. You get know what I'm saying now? Oh uh, well, look, I'm one of them old guys that hates losing 
more than I like winning. But yeah. I don't even think about that if we lost the game before, whether it was my scout or not. I, yeah. Uh, I, I just wish we could have played again. We, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't ever think like I, I got some big. Uh, if we'd have got to there, I'd have been as responsible for us getting to the, this or that or the others. Yeah. We didn't win that one, so I, I, I doesn't matter. One, yeah. one of my mantras as a coach, and I don't know if you ever heard a coach say this, but this is mine. My number one job as a coach is to continually define reality. And our players, they, pro they probably hear me use this word more than anybody in their life is perspective. And when they start getting too excited about something because we win or they get a little down because we lose, I'm always trying to give them perspective of what really is going on and what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in those situations, uh, is reality is I can say I had a great scouting report, but it ain't happening because we're not playing that game. So <laughs> leave that on the thumb, thumb drive. You don't even have to print it out. Yeah, got you. Can you name uh, name like two or three assistant coaches or op guys that that you know that are in the college game right now that you think are going to be phenomenal coaches once once they get the chance one day? Well, uh, you know, Coach Young on our staff is uh, is going to be a, a great head coach when he takes his next next opportunity. I told him all the time before he went to Georgia Southern that he should have got to know Coach Hamilton in a deeper way. Uh, it would make him a better CEO as a head coach, and mm -hmm. he. Uh, Every week now, he says, man, I wish I'd listened to you back when I was at, at Jacksonville and Auburn and Chattanooga and schools he was at. He said, if I'd have been on Coach Hamilton's staff before I went to Georgia Southern, I'd be already a high major coach because I would have been able to turn Georgia Southern's program. And that's where he played in college. And he really wanted that you know, to be a place where he could not just be a Hall of Fame player there, but be a coach that made an impact on the program. Yeah. Uh, he said, if I could go back and do that again. So he is he's on that track. You know, Dennis Gates, who's just now starting his second year, at Cleveland State has already taken what we've done uh, in Coach Hamilton's way. He grooms all of us and has made a mark at Cleveland State. He ended up being the co-coach of the year as his first year as a coach. And, and Cleveland State's kind of been uh, a coaching job where coaching elephants go to die. And uh, he'll be bouncing out of there soon. Uh, you know, Coach Smith, on his, and I hate to just call our guys out, but, but those, those guys are going to be, be terrific head coaches as they get their opportunities. Uh, but as I tell all people all the time, it's, it's hard to get a head coaching job. It's not as easy as people want it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of guys that are, have come through Coach Hamilton's tree that uh, I have no doubt are going to be great. Got you. Last question. Um, what advice do you have for young coaches and, and what do you want your legacy to be? Well, first off, in, uh, in, in my legacy is uh, – First off, it doesn't matter how many games I win. If I'm not a, uh, if I wasn't a champion in my own house, uh, I failed. Uh, so first thing I try to do is, is be a, a terrific example and leader. And uh, I stole this from my father because my father always talked about this from, uh, from the pulpit. You know, is when when his time on this earth is passed and he's laid out in front of the, uh, front of the church, is when people walk by is that they're going to walk by and say there lies a good man, and uh, that's that's the same approach. I try to take in my life is whenever uh, it's time for me to go on to leave this earthly place and go to whatever reward I'm going to have is, is to, to be known as a good man. Uh, because I believe this scripture, it says a good man steps are order of the Lord. And if you went to the school where I started out at, you know, all those years ago now, 40 years ago now, you say there's no way you could have had the experiences that I've had. Uh, but because I've always tried to do right, in my faith and in my family and in my effort in my job. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the good Lord has blessed me with all these opportunities. And I'm hoping that at some point uh, uh, he'll give me the desires of my heart as that other 
uh, scripture says, and that mm-hmm. let me have one small window of time to, to be a head coach. But if not, I'm really at peace with it because I've got to work with an incredible head coach uh, mm-hmm. and have some incredible experiences uh, in some great venues. Got a chance to coach in the NBA, mm-hmm. have won championships in the ACC, the SEC, and the Big East. And uh, uh, got nominated to be in a Hall of Fame for assistant coaches that just came out a couple of years ago and was elected into it. So uh, I can't complain if <laughs> as long as I don't get negligent in my ability to be a leader in my home and then every day come and give my best effort and be an everyday leader for the guys that, uh, that were prompted in their heart to come play for us now at Florida State and even staying in touch. You know, just this past week, I've talked to players from Mississippi State where I coached multiple times with a couple of them. I've talked with several guys that I coached at the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. I talked to guys that I coached at Jackson Academy. I talked to guys that I coached at my first job at First Christian Academy who are now in their uh, early 50s and late 40s, uh, just talking about decisions they're making in their lives. And so that's important to me that we go from the player-coach relationship to being lifetime friends and, and even as a – a person that was an authority for them at one time, hoping they entrusted me to, to have some wisdom and the ability to mentor them as they try to become champions in their lives uh, as husbands and fathers and citizens. And so that's, those are the things that are most important to me. Uh, you can, the wins and losses will all pass away. Somebody's going to remember them in a record book, but uh, the most important is, is, the, is the kind of names we put in the book of life. Impact. I appreciate the time today, Coach Jones. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing the knowledge. It's been great. Well, you're, you're most welcome. I, I thank you that you don't want to take this much time. I hope it's benefit to your listening audience. And uh, please, as a young coach, I know you have aspirations. We've talked a little bit, and I've recruited your program, and I have unbelievable respect for the Damatha program. As uh, we, the, the one time we had a Damatha player, we won an ACC championship. So we need to get some more of those guys uh, down the line. But if there's ever and I tell this, when I was a young guy like you, a lot of old coaches, uh, excuse me, veteran coaches <laughs> poured, poured into me. And uh, I give that back. So if you have any questions or anything I can do to help you in your career for advice or for wisdom or for X's and O's, uh, I will always take your phone call. So please don't ever think you're bothering me because that that's also important to me too. Because if I can give you a little bit of piece of what I've been able to do, uh, a little bit of me will live on as you go into your career long after my career is over with. So I take that that also as a personal charge and responsibility. Fantastic. Thank you, Coach. Appreciate that. No problem. Thank you. All right. Have a great night.